I have a bit of a weird history with this one. Obviously, I'm a Kingdom Hearts fan, so that's a thing. But there's another little tidbit. See, my girlfriend at one point in history, this is many years ago, obviously, was really into this movie. So one time I sat down, and I spent the better part of a couple weeks memorizing the songs. Most of the songs, not all of them. And then she came over to my place one time, and I performed the whole thing for her. To this day, I can actually still sing some, well, badly sing, because I'm completely out of practice with my diaphragm and everything. But I, could, I, I still remember the lyrics, I still remember the, the cadence and the tone. And just to test that, I decided to practice it before I rewatched it. Obviously, I have no way of proving that to you, but it was satisfying to me to know that it's still up there somewhere. Back in 1982? Uh, yeah, no, that is right. There's this dude you've probably never heard of, and he worked as an animator, a storyboard artist, a graphics designer, an art director, and a concept artist with a little-known company called Disney. Some of his works include Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron. Most of his actual concept work never made it to script, but he was still working with them and was trying to really get going with regards to filmmaking since he was really into that. While he was there, he decided to start doing some sketches based on a poem that he himself had written, based on watching a Halloween a store that was taking down Halloween decorations and putting up Christmas ones, and so there was this juxtaposition that intrigued him. He ended up leaving the company. Actually, from what I understand, he was fired. And that's just kind of where Disney was at at that particular point in history. He, he wanted to workshop this idea. He wanted to actually do a short with Disney and, and try to make it happen. And Disney said, eh, no. No, that, that just doesn't work for us. Too dark, too creepy. So they, uh, so that didn't happen. And then a possibly unconnected event, they then booted him from the studio. So he went on to do a, you know, a couple other things you may or may not have heard of. But the big one, the really big one, is Batman. Tim Burton's Batman. Mr. Burton, when he managed that one, proved that he had the cinematic chops to really be a big name with regards to the industry, and a lot more people started paying attention to him. He also, that, that's, uh, I believe that is actually the third film he was involved in working on. Please forgive me, I'm not sure the exact numbering. Where he was working with another guy. Danny Elfman. Elfman's an interesting case. He had his own uh, band called Oingo Boingo, which was actually quite popular, and he was basically the, the headliner. for oh, That's the wrong term. He was the head of Oingo Boingo and the main guy. And he did that for God, about 11 years, something like that. It's a long time to have one job, isn't it? <laughs> These two guys worked together, managed to make some good things. Uh, up until now, uh, so... Elfman, let me rewind a bit, Burton really wanted to make films. Elfman really wanted to get into doing film composition. Now, Elfman got his chance with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He'd technically done ones before that, but that was the one that got him noticed. After that, he did Beetlejuice, Scrooge, Batman, uh, Dick Tracy, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, and, of course, this film. Very shortly after this film, only two years after this film came out, he finally went ahead and quit Oingo Boingo and pursued his dream of being a film composer. And we've had many, many awesome Danny Elfman scores ever since. 
What I'm trying to talk around here is that this was a very unique film. This is truly a passion project. That's not what makes it unique. What makes it unique is the fact that we have two very talented people who happen to have a good rapport, who work together on quite a few things, although not everything. There, there were some other people involved here, obviously. And they both were at the same part of their lives. Burton was frustrated because he was trying to, to break the mold and do things he was actually interested in. And Elfman was frustrated because he just felt like he was in a rut. And both of them were trying to smash out of that. So Burton started workshopping this idea and pushing it with, Bert, with uh, Elfman. And then they ran into legal troubles because everything with Disney involves legal troubles. You see, most of the materials he wanted to use, by materials I mean like ideas, concepts, that kind of thing, were the stuff he had come up with back in the day when he was working at Disney, using their studio, time on the job, and their materials. Disney said that means they owned it. I think that's bullcrap, personally. But, I mean, I could see why Disney would at least want to be involved in it. Like, to me, that means, seems like, well, listen, you know, you, you kind of did this under us. We'd like to help you push this out, and we'll take a you know portion of the profits. Sound cool? But no, instead, Disney said, no, that's ours. You want to do that, you're going to have to go through us. Because that's just how Disney operates. How it has always operated. So, they decided, sure, why not? Why not go ahead and do this? And what happens is Burton and Elfman sat down and said, okay, here's what I want to happen next in the story. And Elfman was like, okay, stop. And he would make a song. And then Burton would say, okay, this is what I want to happen next in this movie. Said, okay, stop. And they'd make a song. It's not quite the Disney Renaissance approach, which I will have talked about last year at this point, with, with regards to how they specifically designed this kind of flow of dialogue to music to dance to music to dialogue kind of a thing going on. But it's still better designed than most musical numbers I can mention nowadays, looking at you, Disney live-action remakes. <clears throat> so, that's a thing. They pushed this together. Uh, two big influences were both mentioned. Elfman, obviously, both of these people were putting personal, uh, personal experience heart, soul, into this. But also, Gilbert and Sullivan was a really big one. Elfman really wanted for a more, uh, I guess, classical kind of approach, even though classical is a totally different thing in music, but you know what I mean. And Selick, Ranft, and Leighton were brought on board to really help make this work. This is one of the other reasons Disney was willing to push this, and it was a good thing that Disney was involved. Why? Because Disney had money, resources, and people. And this movie needed all three. It's actually a relatively short film, thank God. Because otherwise, every second of filming this film took an inordinate amount of time and huge amount of work. At one point in, this, in the construction of this film, they had 20 concurrent sets all doing filming and stop motion simultaneously, which I know is repeating myself, but just to make it really, really clear, I just want to really emphasize the period at the end of that sentence. Holy crap. There was a lot of work. They had a new frickin' camera type. This is the second film we've covered this year that had invented was was involved in inventing a new camera type. Um, what they call it, a concurrent motion. Oh, please tell me I wrote it down. 
I was having trouble finding specifics on how the camera actually worked, like at all. Apparently it's something that's, uh, it was computer operated. So what they could do was they could set it to do a shot, you know, a frame, and then they could set it to do a motion while while people are moving the puppets, and then it would pause for a set period of time for them to get position for the next movement, and then they pause and they take that, and so forth and so on. Because while this is stop motion, there was a lot of puppetry, classic puppetry going on. It's probably most obvious when you see any scene where the camera's moving, the characters are moving, and the terrain is all moving simultaneously. There's some actual, you know, going on there. And the, the, the specific areas had to be designed so people could reach at it from all different angles, and they had people underneath and people inside. I cannot believe they got this sucker made. But unlike most of the films this year, we keep talking about films. We started off, well, actually, we almost started off with Solo, right? And we've talked about so many films that had nightmarish behind-the-scenes problems. This wasn't one of them. By all accounts, this film just went smooth as butter. Just... Now, it took several years to make and was a gargantuan effort. It was a lot of work. I don't want to dismiss that. But there were no giant issues or colossal hang-ups or tech problems or having to rewrite or burning money or whatever. And, of course, the film did sell very, very well. Interesting fact. Uh, Burton himself has put his foot down for decades at this point, insisting there never be a proper sequel to this film. I imagine that's at least one of the reasons Disney decided to push this as one of their uh, the worlds that were allowed to be put in their game franchise, Kingdom Hearts. Fresh reminder, that is a Disney product, not a Square Enix product. But anyways, one little, last little tidbit before we get into the film proper. I actually don't have much to say about the film proper. I do apologize. It's just, it's, it's a fascinating and well done film, but there's not a lot to talk about, you know. I run into that every now and again with my, my Star Trek stuff, too. Michael Eisner is the guy who pushed this over out onto Touchstone. If you look at some of the early trailer footage, you will actually see it is listed under Walt Disney Pictures. Eisner made the decision very late that, this is too dark for our label. We can't have this under Disney. Which probably sounds familiar, if you're paying attention here. Later on, when they had a substantial under-the-hood ch change with, you know, the, the old guard basically leaving and new guys coming in charge, uh, that then led to all of that going the heck away. Things like the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise is often credited as one of the big boys, which actually was like, okay, Disney's cool with having other stuff under their label, label now. Excuse me, I'm stuttering now. What's funny is... If you look at it historically, what Disney was going through with their, their image at this point is almost exactly what happened with Nintendo. And both went through the same path. By the time the GameCube came out, they were totally fine with putting whatever on their systems. And they had pushed away from that, we need to be family-friendly at all cost imagery thing. And in both cases, it was arguably for the betterment of the studios. Go figure. So... Where to begin? I, if you pay attention to most of the, the core Disney Renaissance films, you will notice patterns. I actually deliberately didn't talk about that last year. At least I don't think I did. But I'm going to talk about it here because I don't have much else to talk about. Patterns in music. Um, the I Want It song. The I'm Gonna Make It Happen song. You know, the, the I'm psyching yourself up. And then the... 
oh, everything's gone badly song, and then the triumphant song. And there's a few others, but there's there's kind of a pattern to that, especially amongst the Disney Renaissance. This film follows it kind of. There's the intro song, the I Want song. Then there's the, oh, I suck song. So we have that pretty early. This is immediately followed by the I'm going to make it happen song. Then it segues into a mischief song. That's the one sung by uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Then we have the working on the plan song again. This is them making Christmas. And then uh, Sally actually gets a song. This is strange. If you pay attention to the Disney Renaissance, uh, oh, God, what's his freaking name? Prince Philip, I think, in Little Mermaid. He doesn't get a song. If you look at Beast, he doesn't get a song, at least not a solo. And if you look at uh, Aladdin, Jasmine doesn't get a song in the originals. However, Sally actually does get a song here, which makes sense since Sally is just as much part of the main theme of this work as Jack is. It's just she gets a lot less. Well, no, yeah, she gets she gets less screen time. I'm not going to say a lot less because she actually gets a fairly large amount of screen time in this film overall. Easily the second biggest character. And then, you know, we have the, the reprise song, the I screwed up, but I'm not going to give up song, and then the, you know, ending song. That's kind of the lineup. Uh, Sarandon and Elfman both played Jack. I knew Elfman played Jack for the longest time. I didn't actually know Sarandon did. Just weird to me. Uh, he's the guy who played Prince Humperdinck over in Princess Bride, for those of you who don't remember the name. I'm going to skip over the main theme for now, because it's the big thing I want to talk about. So the mayor shows up. He's pathetic and worthless. You know, I would find that funny if not for the fact that he literally calls out the joke himself. I'm an elected official. I can't make decisions by myself. Wah, wah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he he's a gag. Um, there's this bit where Jack goes to Christmas Town for the first time. I know I'm jumping over huge chunks, but like I said, I just don't have much to say about huge swaths of this film. Jack goes to Christmas Town for the first time and he sees snow for the first time. How many of you remember that moment? I, I suppose I'll raise my hands. I remember the first time I ever saw snow was Colorado. First time I moved out there. Because I was used to living in the desert. You know, my family was in Vegas and I lived in Southern California, so yeah, we didn't get snow at all, ever. So I'd seen it in pictures of it, but I never saw it in person. I'll never forget that very first time. Now, what's funny is uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm intolerant of heat, which is another fancy way of saying I am very, fairly tolerant of cold, especially when I was a kid and a lot more energetic than I am now. So, yeah, I just went out and was like, yeah! <laughs> I just, it, was, it was joy. It was fun. And I threw it around, and I tried to make a snowman, and I failed miserably. It was this, it's this big. It was a stupid, dumb thing. Um, it was so much fun. I did eventually get a little bit sick of snow. After all, I lived in Colorado. Boulder, Colorado, if you're curious of the specific area. But still, I will never forget that. And he does. A, there's a good job done by the animators, by the actor, in this case Elfman, because he's the one singing it, and by the comp composition of the music, which is also Elfman, to get across that sense of wonder and joy. And, oh my god, this is amazing! And I like how they capture that feeling there. They capture another feeling too, but again, I'm kind of building up to that point. So, why is everyone completely useless without Jack? He's been gone one day and everyone flips out. Oh, God, we can't do anything without Jack. I don't have much to say about that. It's a weird plot point, and I don't actually know what's up with it. The mayor, I can make, that makes sense, because he's, a, uh, he's an elected official. 
Why is everyone else all bad? Unless maybe it's just the mayor, and I'm just reading too much into it. That's entirely possible. So I said, okay, we got this. We're going to figure out this Christmas thing. It's going to be great. Jack doesn't understand it at all, but it's okay, because he'll be the one to explain it to every other one. That certainly can't go badly. <laughs> he starts doing these experiments that have nothing to do with anything. By the way, this is a nice contrast. We see him doing literally meaningless experiments. Like, imagine if I was trying to understand carrots, and I picked one out, and I decided to shine a light on it to see how the light bounces off the carrot in order to understand a carrot. Not figure out its scent or its construction or, you know, the level of starch or sugar or whatever. Maybe it's not starch. What's in you? I can't remember. I know there's fiber in there. You know, it, it, nothing actually connected to anything, which is obviously very much on purpose. And thus, immediately contrast Sally, who accurately makes a nice little potion of, or excuse me, wine bottle of awesome, and successfully makes a contraption which allows her to escape, get the basket down without harming it, and then get the basket up to his place without harming it. <laughs> I suppose this does make sense. She is the daughter of Dr. Frankenstein, so that makes that lines up. Anyways, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I do that as a joke. Young Frankenstein, you know? Anyways. <clears throat> One little gag I have to point out. The camera pans on this blackboard, and he's done all these equations trying to figure out a Christmas. At one point he says 3 times pi, uh, pi squared times 12 equals roughly 355. And why is that so funny? That's December 21st. Now you're probably thinking, well, that's not Christmas. And you're right, you'll notice he's actually crossed it out on the list. But it's funny for several other reasons, the most obvious one being Winter Solstice. But it's also uh, Kurt, not Kurtzman, uh, Katzenberger's birthday. And if you don't know that name, don't worry about it, but Disney Renaissance. Anywho, <clears throat> so Sally has this vision. Sure. I remember when I first saw this film, I was actually weirded out at how it goes so quickly across the year, because apparently I was an idiot back in 93. It makes so much sense. It goes just straight from October to December, so they have a couple months to figure this out, and they do, right? I, mean, I don't know what was wrong with me. Anyways, <clears throat> so Lock, Shock, and Barrel, they capture, uh, kidnap the Easter Bunny. <sighs> this is also the first time we get a reference to the so-called villain of the work. In some of the original drafts, Oogie Boogie didn't even exist in this film. But they needed some kind of antagonist who wasn't the main character. Spoilers. So they had to put in someone. I mentioned that I did the songs earlier. My favorite song to perform, by far, was the Oogie Boogie song. Because I'm the boogeyman. And if I'm feeling antsy and I got nothing much to do, I might just dig... I'm, I'm not going to do the whole thing. But I love playing that song. It's just a fun song to sing, you know? I recommend it for anybody even passively interested in it. Just by yourself, you know, nobody has to hear you. Unless you want people to hear you. I know there's the, the divide there. So, question. Do you think the members of Halloween Town are mean? You know, ill-spirited, trolls, whatever you want to call that? I hesitate to call them malevolent, but do you? No, I don't, personally. But the biggest reason why I don't think that, other than the fact that there's literally a line in the first song that says, that's our job, but we're not mean, is the fact that Oogie Boogie is the contrast to that. He's mean. He's actually, you know, evil. That's why he doesn't live in Halloween Town. He's over there. And he's also the boogeyman. And uh, Bug Day, by the way. Cute reference. But yeah, at 49 minutes into like an hour and 20 film, 
I think it's like an hour and ten minutes or something like that. Oogie Boogie, the so-called villain, finally shows up for real. Sadly, I don't have much to say about him, other than the fact that he's mean, and I love the idea that he is kind of like the Borg. Hear me out. We see earlier that they, they cook up this bug and then send it down to him. And then Oogie eats it and sends it back up. We find out afterwards that if without his stitching, he is just a giant pile of bugs and snakes for some reason. Then he falls apart and loses his cohesion. In short, he, what he is is that compilation of bugs being kept into one uh, sentience, if you will. Thus, he goes bigger and stronger by eating, eating other bugs. Just interesting idea. It would also kind of so form a weird relationship between him and Lockshock and Barrel and anyone else that they feed him bugs so he gets bigger and stronger and can keep going. Just just food for thought. Maybe he needs to replace bugs every now and again as they actually die out inside of him. This is all pretty horrible to think about. I'll go ahead and admit it. But it's just, it's just what was going through my head as they do it. So they have the big thing. They, they go to do the Christmas. Uh, the scene from the trailer. Remember this? When Mom and I first saw that scene, we were like, oh, we're not seeing this in the theaters. However, if you've heard me talk about my real-life history at any point, you know that at this roughly this point in history, uh, Mom and I used to go to the theaters very regularly. It was literally a weekly thing for us. She's a big cinema geek. I enjoy spending time with my mother. It was a good way to see a bunch of films. So I've seen a whole lot of films in theater and a whole lot of bad ones because we would go every week. So at one point, we did finally see it. We were both glad we did. It's a good film. It's a good film, but yeah, that trailer, you remember that? What Santa bring you, honey? Pulls out the shrunken head. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> so then we have to have the saving Christmas scene. Actually, this is before what I just referenced. With, with like, It's almost copy-paste from Rudolph the Red. Oh, no Christmas. And it's even the kid who says that. Come on. So then they decide to bring out the anti-air fire, aircraft fire, in order to shoot down... Uh, Jack Skellington. He goes down, he has his epiphany, he goes and fights Boogie. Boogie gets destroyed because he's just a bunch of bugs. Santa Claus saves Christmas because he has superpowers too. Why wouldn't he? The end. Now you notice I've jumped over the big theme I've referenced a few times. Midlife crisis. I don't mean that dismissively. Let me, let me take that back a step. You ever been in your life, and you ever feel like you're just really not super engaged in what you're doing, even though it's something you like doing? Now, that's important. It's easy to feel blah about a job you don't like, or a life you don't like, or a place you don't like living, or a relationship you're not happy in, or whatever, right? That's easy. Just about anybody can understand that. What I mean is being at a point where you have a good existence, which may or may not be good life, but it just kind of gets dull to you, and you just kind of go, eh. You fall into doldrums, effectively. The stagnation of it gets to you. If you're paying attention, both Sally and Jack have that exact same problem in this film. And if you're paying attention to the beginning of this rumination, you remember that I mentioned that both Elfman and uh, Burton were going through the exact same problem, too. Here's a catch. The reason I call that the midlife crisis is because the definition of a midlife crisis, functionally, is when someone gets to that point in their life freaks out, and does really stupid, outlandish things which are wasteful and dumb, which make things worse. Sound familiar? How do you deal with that? Well, the answer is simple. Variety. Little tidbits here. 
alter it every now and again, or change up the status quo, or just spend some time doing something else. It is, there's, there's no one sentence answer here. That's the point. It's a complex problem. Because again, that exact type of thing is something that by definition you don't dislike. You just, you want some more variety in your life. If anything, this is probably a simple factor of psychology. We are human beings. We need external stimuli. This is one of Sally's biggest shticks, and it's made incredibly obvious in the film. She's not even allowed to go out and about. And uh, Professor Jackassface, the guy who's supposed to be Dr. Frankenstein, he says at several points in time, it's just too much for you. You know, it's too much stimulation, too much noise and effort. You need to just, you're not ready for it. It's, it's not good enough for you. And yet that's exactly what she needs. She is stagnating because she is being limited in what she can interact with, just like Jack is. Jack's been the Pumpkin King for years, and he likes it. He just needs a little bit something new every now and again. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to go out and buy a new car and date someone half your age. Okay? You don't have to go try to steal an entire holiday. You just need something. You need to manage that carefully and quietly. And you need to figure out what it is that it is for you in order to make that work. Right? You need to find something to eat other than bread every day. I mean, bread's fine, and it's good bread. You know, you love the taste of that bread. Oh, it's delicious. But if all you have is bread every day, you're going to have problems. It, it, and I love, I, I really legitimately love how accurately this film portrays that exact mentality, that exact problem. You know, I just made a joke about, I made a reference, an analogy about bread. But it's barely a reference, and it's not joking. You need to take care of your mental health and your emotional health just as much as you do your physical health, right? This human being 101. So you need more than one intake. We, even if it's good, you need more. Now, the film kind of implies that Jack will get some of that from Sally, and Sally will get some of that from Jack. And you know what? That can work. Sometimes a good relationship with someone who just forms a nice loop... You know, both of you being a source of external stimulus, insert sex joke here, for each other is actually a good and healthy thing and allows you both to develop and grow and be more and have more, be more enriched, be fuller, be healthier, be more you. This is a good film for that. And I'm not 100% sure when this film is going to line up on the schedule, but this should be the last film going out this year. So if it is... And if this is roughly at that point in time, Merry Christmas. I hope you have something like that in your life. And for however much longer we're going to keep doing this show. So I hope I'll be seeing you next year as well. But either way, have a good one, guys.